Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, so I'm here with my colleague Emily Saul, who's in the courtroom every day covering the Elizabeth Holmes trial. And we are now really getting into the meat of this trial. Things are getting serious. Uh, one of the witnesses that the prosecution called was Justin Offen, a uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers security expert, which is kind of a strange witness uh, to call, but there's an explanation for it. Uh, he was there solely for the purpose of introducing texts between Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. Um, and the reason for this is that before the trial, in pretrial hearings, the defense had contested the authenticity of these texts that the government wanted to enter into evidence. And the judge had sided with the defense and said to the government that they needed to uh, do a better job of proving that the texts were authentic. And so to do that, they had to call the guy who actually had to go in and make a tape of Elizabeth's phone and of Sonny's phone. Emily, uh, what did you think of Justin Offen's testimony? Yeah. So, I mean, often came in, he was sort of what you would expect uh, of a custodial witness. You know, he doesn't have any uh, skin in the game except for the fact that he took the devices and processed all of them and made a, a spreadsheet uh, containing all of the communications uh, that he was able to pull from the devices between Sonny and Elizabeth. Um, you know, it was a uh, very cut and dry testimony, but these were some of the first instances in which jurors did get to see the communications between the two. And the witness did read some of these texts and prosecutors read some of them too, but it doesn't sound like the prosecutors gave a lot of context for them. And so that what that suggests to me is that prosecutors are just introducing the texts into the evidence and they're going to come back to them later when other uh, trial witnesses are called to the stand and place them in context. Precisely. Um, it's, I mean, you know, he, he created the spreadsheet, so he's there to basically be able to say, I made this uh, under oath. I can attest that, you know, these are, <laughs> these are the texts, but he can't really say anything else. So it's, um, I mean, you, you very commonly see this in trials and that a custodial witness will bring in something and uh, the prosecution will return to it later. And one of the things I was happy to see is that most, if not all, of those text passages that were introduced were exactly the ones that we had actors read in episode three of this podcast. All right, let's move on to the next witness, and that was General Jim Mad Dog Mattis. He was once a member of Theranos' board. Uh, he used to be a very strong supporter of Elizabeth Holmes' What was the point of uh, calling Mattis to the stand? What were prosecutors trying to do there? So Mattis was definitely there to establish a couple of things. Um, one was that, uh, you know, he, as a, a member of the board, um, was uh, repeatedly misled by Elizabeth Holmes. Um, the other was that Theranos, at least to the best of his knowledge, uh, as someone with a top security clearance, never had any sort of contract with the U.S. military. 
Right, and of course the latter point is important to establish uh, before uh, the next stages of the trial when the prosecution is going to call investor witnesses and they will testify to the fact that Sonny and Elizabeth repeatedly told them that Theranos had contracts with the military and that the Theranos devices were used in the field by the, the military, that they were on medevac helicopters. None of these things were true. And so uh, someone like Mattis helps establish that this was fiction. Absolutely. And I mean, Mattis himself was also an investor. You know, he testified he put in uh, $85,000, which, as he said, for someone who spent their life in civil service was no small amount to him. I mean, he also testified that, you know, he was attracted to this device because of its compact size. And so had he known that the um, the Edison itself was not solely individually able to run the tests that Elizabeth told him it was, he would not have been interested. Now, uh, on cross, the defense tried to insinuate that he knew that Theranos had a central lab and that therefore he must have known that it wasn't just the Theranos device that the company was using, but it didn't sound like he agreed with that. It, it sounded like, uh, you know, his retort was, I always thought that we were using our own gear. Otherwise, what was the point? He, he repeatedly said when, you know, questioned about what he knew or didn't know that, uh, no, he had no idea that uh, third-party devices were being used or that other methods were being used. Because, again, he was interested in something that could go in a helicopter, that could go in a small boat, that could be used by, you know, during covert operations. So um, he... Uh, he, he definitely, again, returned to the point that he was interested in this device explicitly for its small size and, you know, purported ability to do uh, many, many things. Okay, so let's talk about the most important witness uh, that was called uh, so far in this trial, and that was the lab director, Adam Rosendorf. He is an absolutely pivotal witness for the prosecution. He testified that he tried to delay the launch. He uh, repeatedly expressed concerns uh, about the accuracy of the blood test, tried to uh, get Theranos to revert to using ordinary machines. Um, one, one of the, the, the key moments, I thought, was that he testified that he went to Elizabeth's office on the eve of the launch. It was about a week before the launch, I think he said, and she had a countdown uh, in her office. She had uh, uh, the number of days uh, left before the launch posted on the window of her office. And he went and he tried to get her to delay. Uh, he called attention to the fact that several of the assays, as they're known in, in laboratory speak, meaning blood tests, were not working well. And he also uh, pleaded for more time. And he testified that she was pretty nervous that her, I think he said her knee was shaking, that her voice was trembling, and yet she did not uh, heed his advice and she did not delay the launch. That seemed to be an important moment, no? Absolutely. I think that was a, um, it was a very, he gave a very visual description. It was obvious that this was a, a memory that was, um, that was really powerful for him. He, as he sort of walked through, you could, you could imagine yourself walking into this office, seeing the, you know, countdown to the launch on, um, on the wall and, uh, yeah, just her shaking. Um, but saying that, no, they were going forward with the launch and, you know, dismissing the, the things that he had to say. 
He had a powerful quote at one point uh, during his testimony, which is that there came a point where he realized that the company didn't care about patients and it was all about fundraising and PR. Do you remember that? Yes, he um, he actually he said uh, versions of that a couple times. You know, he he was it was a and it was a, a company he was excited to join. He he you know he said he thought it would be the next Apple, but pretty uh, pretty quickly his impression. Uh, became that, you know, they were prioritizing um, publicity over patient care. Another really important moment of his testimony is when they got around to talking about uh, Theranos' pregnancy test results. And he clearly uh, had major misgivings about the accuracy of their pregnancy tests. Um, And the reason this is so important is uh, just a few witnesses prior, the government had brought to the stand uh, a woman uh, who had received a false uh, pregnancy test, who, who had been told by Theranos that she was miscarrying when, in fact, uh, her pregnancy was perfectly viable and she ended up having a baby months later. Uh, and it had also called uh, her doctor. And, and both uh, the doctor and patient were upset about what had happened. And here we have uh, the laboratory director testifying that he himself uh, was trying to raise alarm bells with the pregnancy tests. You know, it's an abstract concept to talk about, you know, whether or not tests were or were not working. Um, but just for, for this to come days after, you know, the testimony of Dr. Audra Zachman, a nurse practitioner, and her patient Brittany Gould come in. Brittany Gould had had a couple of miscarriages. And one of the thing that both Gould and Zachman testified about is that, you know, you get to a point where if you have um, what is considered a non-viable pregnancy, which is what Theranos was indicating she had, you can either um, sort of let your body reabsorb or you can terminate that non-viable pregnancy. So, I mean, the results that she got from Theranos could have led for her to to terminate a, a very, very, very wanted baby girl. Um, and it was just because they didn't make that medical decision to terminate the pregnancy, but for Gold to reabsorb it, that they actually were able to determine that she was pregnant and she was able to go on and give birth to a healthy baby girl. So another part of Rosendorf's testimony that's really important is that uh, a lot of his emails were either directly to Elizabeth, he also met with her, uh, as we said, right before the launch, um, or they were to Sonny or Daniel Young, and they were forwarded eventually to Elizabeth, or she was CC'd on them. Uh, it seems like she she knew, she had to know of his concerns, because she's practically on every single communication. Yeah, it was actually really, um, especially after the defense's openings, where it's sort of, you know, we got the impression that this was just a a young person who was in over their head. Uh, Every single communication, um, to the best of my recollection, that the government brought up was either directed at her or uh, emailed to Sonny and Danielle Young, the vice president, and then forwarded to her. And a couple of them she even responded to. So she, I mean, unless she wants to claim that she wasn't reading her email, which uh, I, I don't think would be very believable, um, she received a lot of these emails in which Dr. Rosendorf is very explicitly saying, um, this is not working we need to not do this. We need to not be testing this on the Edison. We need to delay launch. Um, just a lot of emails making very, very clear that he was not confident in the technology and um, was adamant that it should not be used in any way relating to patient care. 
So one of the ways in which the defense is going to try to impeach and discredit Rosendorf is to bring up the fact that after Theranos, he worked for two other labs that were also caught up in, in federal investigations. But it's unclear yet whether they're going to be able to do that um, because they have to clear it with the judge first. Um, and the judge has to decide whether information from those other two investigations are relevant to this trial. That could, be a, that could very well be a key moment because if the defense is able uh, to bring up this other information about these other companies, it could make Rosendorf look bad. Most definitely. You know, I think it goes to the idea that, you know, if there are other labs that he was working at after Theranos that continued to have various issues that led to uh, federal regulators being called in, it, I think it could affect the way jurors view him a little bit. That being said, I, I, I do think that the um, sort of the physical evidence that was brought in through his testimony, the emails, et cetera, will show that he, as, um, you know, as an employee, as lab director at Theranos, did basically everything he thought he could to, um, to try and make sure that Theranos was not endangering patients. So, Emily, I mean, this just seems like devastating testimony to me. And after uh, Friday, after the day of testimony ended, you went to the Starbucks by the courthouse. Uh, and you often go there, I think, in the, in the morning and sometimes the afternoon. And Tell me what you saw there. Yeah, so Friday was was really rough. Um, and just so after court, I'd walked over to the Starbucks and um, inside, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth and her mother, uh, who, who's who been there with her every day so far of testimony, were, um, were standing and waiting for an order. Holmes's body language was completely different. She's, she's very aware of the way that she holds herself um, and, you know, every single thing that she does in court. But this was sort of like in the Starbucks while she was waiting for her order. I think one of the first times that I feel that I've seen her with her guard down and I mean, her back was to me and sh she was, you know, looking at her mother, but they were standing very close. Um, and, uh, you know, it almost looked like her mother was consoling her. Her body language just looked totally defeated and exhausted. Um, you know, her head was slightly bent, her shoulders were slumped. I mean, my the inference I would draw is that she also felt like Friday was a um, was a very difficult day for her case. All right. Well, the trial resumes this week with Adam Rosendorf's direct examination, followed by the defense's cross-examination, which we expect to be lengthy. Mm -hmm. 